The headline this morning uh, that I read on from the news, hundreds dead after Hamas attack. Latest counts of what's going on in uh, Israel, Israel-Palestine. 500 people dead since yesterday. Thousands of people who've been injured in the, in the violence that's happening there in the, the Gaza Strip and in southern Israel. Unknown numbers of people who've been taken, taken hostage by militants. I, I don't know if we can fathom this, but imagine masked jihadis coming in a group to your door and shooting whoever comes to the door and then kidnapping whoever they can get and then heading back into a place where who knows if that, that loved one will ever come back. Just horrifying. Another headline from this week. This one's from the Wall Street Journal. Violent crime is surging in D.C. this year. And then there's the colon and this phrase in quotes, we just stood there and screamed. It's a potent headline that captures that feeling of helplessness when violence, when crime is going on around us. Statistic, statistic from 2017. Only about half the violent crimes and a third of the property crimes that occur in the United States each year are reported to the police. And most of the crimes that are reported don't result in the arrest, charging, and prosecution of a suspect, according to government statistics. There's a lot of violence, a lot of crime, a lot of it, most of it never is reported or solved. We can just bring it a little closer to home. Maybe you think, like, in your workplace, like, somebody just got a promotion that you know, that guy lied on his resume. Or this person got a promotion who you know, man, he cheated his way through school, and now he's getting ahead. Often we see in our society people who lie and insult. They get ahead. It doesn't seem to harm them. Bullies get promotions. Nice guys come in last. Crime often seems to pay uh, if you can get away with it. And let's be honest, as much as we tell our kids honesty is the best policy, if you're trying to just win and get ahead, oftentimes it's not. The simple fact of the matter is that even though we live in the most peaceful, prosperous, safe period in human history, even with a war in, in Israel, even with a war going on in Ukraine, we're still living in a vastly safer world than somebody living in, say, the Middle Ages was a part of. We don't need any convincing to be reminded of the fact that we live in a world where there is evil that is rampant. It was G.K. Chesterton who kind of quipped one time that the the one doctrine of Christianity that can be empirically proven is the doctrine of original sin. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the world around us and say, man, we are living in a fallen world. We're living in a world where there is violence, where there is oppression, where there is evil. So we're keenly aware of the fact that there is precious little justice in this world. We all want justice. We all long for justice, but we rarely see justice, and we rarely get justice. So the question we want to ask and answer that I think Psalm 5 is addressing is how do we respond to evil in our world, whether we're talking on the global stage or whether we're talking on a, in a more personal way in our lives. Psalm, psalm 5 is a Psalm of David. Here's a guy who dealt plenty of times with evil personally against him. But you'll notice as we read through this, he doesn't really mention anything specific from his life. There's not, he's not referring to a, to a particular instance where, say, Saul or Absalom is coming after him. He's more just stepping back and looking at the world around us and thinking, hey, God, there's evil around us, and this is bothering me. You're a holy God. You're a just God. How can there be this evil that is just running rampant? What do we do with this? How do you respond when evil comes knocking at your door? How do you react? When you're grappling with injustice, where 
So someone got the wrong end of the stick and you're being treated as the bad guy rather than the bad guy being treated as the bad guy. Where your reputation ends up in tatters because somebody lied about you or someone misunderstood something or something was said on social media that wasn't accurate. How do you respond when you face slanderous attacks and vicious assaults? Psalm 5 is a psalm that is appealing for God to intervene in the midst of a world that is marked by evil. And while it's not a sort of philosophical treatise on the problem of evil, it is wrestling with some of those themes. If God is good, and if God is all-powerful, why evil? If he's good, he wouldn't want it. If he's all-powerful, he could stop it. So what is going on here? How do we reconcile the fact of evil, the fact of sin, the prevalence of injustice in our world with the goodness and the holiness and the justice of God? And what David does is he takes it to God in prayer. So we're continuing to study real psalms, real life. And listen, real life, the real world is one where there is evil, is one where there is injustice. It is one where we're all at some point going to be confronted with the questions that are bubbling up in this psalm. So how does David respond to it? Very simply, let me put it this way. David appeals and roots himself in the character of God. That's it. Not sort of, a, not sort of just a vague hope that the you know, the arc of history is long and it bends towards justice. I'm sorry, the arc of history does not bend towards justice. Unless there is a God in heaven who is working his purpose, who will one day make all things new. So David, he goes to the character of God. He doesn't sort of say, well, I'm going to try and figure this out. I'm going to go become a vigilante. I'm going to go make this right. I'm going to start a campaign. Though David as king would certainly be under God's law and required to make just laws and do that sort of thing. But ultimately, he says, I'm going to answer these questions before the throne of God above. I'm going to take these to the one who is the rock of ages that I have fled to for safety and protection. So what do you do when you're confronted with evil? Whether this is a, a doubt you're having in your heart. Maybe you're coming to that place where you're like, man, I am beginning to really have questions here. Christianity and the evil in the world and suffering. And I've seen people who are good people who are going through really hard things. Why did bad things happen to good people? people when good things happen to bad people. Let's go to Psalm 5 to, to see what we are to do. When you are confronted with evil, number one, appeal, trust in, rely upon the fact of God's sovereignty. Now, God's sovereignty simply is the reality that God is absolutely, utterly in control of everything in this world. Sometimes people will try to get God out of sort of a pinch, out of a bind by saying, yeah, he's in control, but not of everything. He just kind of foresees evil happening, and he sort of steps back, and because of man's free will, he doesn't sort of interfere and get himself involved, and he won't sully his hands. The picture we get of God in the Bible is a God who is in control over evil, and that's really good news. Because would you want evil to simply be in control of evil? Would you want evil to just be running amok with no purpose or, 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 or input from God? What we get in the pages of Scripture is the fact that there would be no evil. There would be nothing that would happen in God's world without God's decree without God decreeing to permit it to happen. Which also gives us good hope to know that God has a purpose to one day bring it to an end. So Psalm 5, we see David leaning into the fact of God's sovereignty. Look at the first three verses. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Let me just make an obvious point. What's the point of praying to God if he doesn't have power? Right. The, the very fact that we go to God to ask him to intervene in things in our world is a declaration of faith to say, God, we believe that you are in control. When you go to God, say, God, would you please save 
you know, my, my, my cousin or my neighbor or my son or my daughter or my parent or my father-in-law. We're assuming that God has the power to bring that about when we pray. On our knees, we may not have all the answers about how God's sovereignty interacts with a world where people are making choices, but on our knees, we recognize that he is in control. However it works out, it is faith seeking understanding. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my king and my God. Now, here's where we get the idea of sovereignty is God as king is one who is in control. He's going to God, not just God, you're my buddy who can kind of sit on the ash heap and commiserate with me, but you're a king who's in control over all of this. For unto thee will I pray. My voice thou shalt hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. David's appealing to a God he believes hears, a God whose ear is open, who's eager. Now think when you read that word here, not just sort of like, you know, we, we... do you hear me? Do you listen to me? This is more the idea of listening. God's hearing is active, right? It is, it, it is involved. He's not just sort of, okay, I hear you, and I'm going to go on. I'm, I'm just hearing to respond. But he hears. He listens to understand. David's prayer here is heartfelt. We get here, the very first words in the Hebrew text in verse 1 are, my words give ear to, O Lord. And then that translation, my meditation, is even the idea of sighs, whispers, those, those longings, those pains that you can't quite put into words. This is what um, Paul is referring to in, in, in Romans 8. Where he talks about we're, we're groaning in a fallen world. And then the Holy Spirit takes those groanings, which cannot be uttered, and turns them into prayers before God. Sometimes you're just like, ah, you're looking at the world, and you're like, I'm feeling grieved and broken, and I can't quite articulate this. Praise God, the Holy Spirit, as our, as our advocate, as our helper, is taking that and lifting that up to God in prayer. We have a God who hears. We have a Holy Spirit who takes our wordless longings and translates them into the most eloquent prayers before the throne of God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The sense that we get here, we have noticed just the terms that are used. Verse 1, give ear. We have consider. Verse 2, hearken. Uh, We have my voice, you will hear. Verse 3, all of these words that emphasize the fact that we have a God who hears. But don't lose sight of this. Notice the repetition of the divine names. Verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord. Verse 2, we have my King and my God. Verse 3, we have O Lord. Uh, And we get a sense here, the way this is arranged in Hebrew is the emphasis is on the fact, look at the one that you are praying to. It's not so much that you are praying, but you're praying to God, to a God who is in control, a God who listens, a God who rules, a God who is ruler over heaven and earth. He's the one that you're taking your complaint to, a God who is utterly and absolutely sovereign over his universe. Listen, God's rule, unlike the gods of the ancient world, you know, the head that you would have them. Canaanite gods. There's gods of the mountains, there's gods of the valleys, there's a god of the sea, a god of the land, you know, a god over wisdom, a god over different domains. Our God is not at all limited. He's not just simply a god over some things, he's a god over all things. His rule is not territorial, it doesn't stop at the borders of the nation. His rule is over every single molecule in the universe, over every planet, over every galaxy, over every atom, over every subatomic particle that will ever be discovered. He rules over all of that as king. His rule is not limited by anything. That's what Nebuchadnezzar learned. He realized that no one will stay to your, stay your hand and say, what doest thou? God answers to no one. There's no higher court of appeals that he must answer to. He is not bound by what anybody wants or desires. He is God and there is none else. 
He rules over every second of history. He rules over every unexplored galaxy. He rules over every creature in heaven and earth and in the sea and even in the depths where there's stuff that we probably don't even know yet that exists. He rules over it all. Now, this is interesting. As King David prays to God, he recognized he's a higher king than I am. This is what is so fundamentally different about this Judeo-Christian understanding of, of, of rulers. They're not unlimited. They're not standing in the place of God. They stand under God, under his law. And David is submitting that to that. He's recognizing that. How much more do you and I need to recognize? I'm not the ultimate king. He's the ultimate king. So we have in the Lord's Prayer, which is a great model for praying, thy kingdom come. That's a prayer. That's an acknowledgement to say, God, you're king, and I'm not. I'm not after building my own kingdom. This is about your kingdom. This is about your rule. This is not about me getting my way, but you getting your way. Now, I love verse 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, in the morning. So we get this in the morning repeated twice. A couple of things going on here. The morning is a symbol for this time of hope. Now, you might have had a horrible day yesterday, but then the next day is like fresh start, right? I can, I can do it over. I blew the diet yesterday, but today's a chance to try and get back on the, on the wagon. Uh, or I didn't do great with my exercise, but today I can get a new start. That's why we love sort of new years, new months, new seasons. Praise God for fall. This is awesome. But this, I, this symbol of hope, this is the time I'm coming to God, and he's going he's gonna to do something. But there's also the idea uh, in verse 3, you look back here at the text, in the morning I will direct, now you notice my prayer is in italics. The idea of the Hebrew word here is I'm going to arrange. So maybe it could be I'm arranging, that the term could be used of a legal complaint. Okay, I'm going to put my complaint all in order, and boom, here it is, I'm bringing the argument before you. I'm sort of turning in the, the term paper, so to speak. Or it could be the idea of arranging the wood and the sacrifice on the altar. There's a morning sacrifice every day in the tabernacle in the temple. I think the idea here is I'm approaching God in the morning through sacrifice, through prayer, bringing my, my petitions to him. And then there's this phrase, and we'll look up. The Hebrew word here is the idea of wait. So David's like, God, hear me. I'm going to bring my prayer to you. I'm going to roll it over to you, and then I'm going to wait. Maybe that's part of our answer to this. Is yes, there is evil that has invaded God's world. It wasn't part of the plan in the, in the Garden of Eden. God made everything, saw it was very good. Evil is an intrusion. Evil is a perversion of what is good. But we're waiting the day where evil will be banished, where it is going to be no more. In other words, evil is temporary. We don't have a sort of like a really nice, you know, here's the answer to the problem of evil and the questions of evil come up. But part of the answer we, we, we see in Scripture is that evil is temporary. It's not always going to be. It's an intruder that is broken into God's world, that one day is going to be expelled for all eternity. I'm waiting. Waiting for God. Waiting for his answer. Waiting for his intervention. We're addressing a God who's going to one day make all things new. A God who is sovereign over history, over eternity. He's going to fulfill every promise. We need that reminder in the morning, every day. Don't start your day with the news. Start your day with the good news. Start your day with God's word. Start your day with coming into his presence. Uh, we're such creatures of habit. Sometimes the easiest thing in the world for, for us to do, I'm guilty of it. The first thing you grab in the morning is what? Your phone. You get notifications and things dinging in and a news story and an update and who won the, the games yesterday and all of these different things. What if instead we made our first move to be towards God? Just in the silence, in the moment, 
in the morning, I'm going to go before him, bringing my prayer. I'm not saying the Bible requires this, but I think it's a great practice. The things that we do first get done. They don't get crowded out. In the morning, you'll hear my voice. Let's move on to a, a, a second attribute of God that he appeals to. Along with David, when we are confronted with evil, what do we do? Okay, we appeal to God's sovereignty. He's king. He's in control. He listens. He's going to one day make all things new. Secondly, we appeal to God's holiness. Part of what's going on in the structure here of the psalm is David will will, will bring a petition to God, and then he will give a ground or a reason for it. So verses 1 to 3, he gives the petition, God, would you listen? And then beginning in verse 4, notice we have that word, for. Here's the reason, God. Here is the... Uh, the, the, the ground for this petition that I am bringing. And that goes through verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, and then verse 7 and 8, the, the petition is, God, would you lead me? And verse 9 gives us the ground. Here's why I need you to lead me. There's all of this deception, and I need you to make my steps plain. Verse 10, the prayer is, God, would you judge the wicked? The reason? They've rebelled against you. Verse 11, the petition is, God, would you bless and, and bring to worship your, your, your people? Why? Verse 12, for thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. That's how the psalm is structured. A petition and then a reason behind it. A petition, then a reason behind it. Here's the, the reason at the heart of the psalm, verses 4 to 6. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. So God, okay, here's the dilemma. God is utterly and absolutely holy, and yet there's evil in the world. This is, this is the big challenge that's going on. When you are confronted with evil, remember God's holiness. It can be easy to say, well, if there's evil in God's world, it's only because God decreed to allow it. That's true. And God's in control of it and could stop at any time. That's also true. And he's going to bring it to an end one day. That's also true. Some people then make the logical leap to say, because God could stop the evil and God could have decreed for the evil not to come in, therefore God's the one doing the evil. Or God's doing all this nasty stuff and they blame God. Verse 4 simply will not allow that. Thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. All the evil in the world that happens is an affront to the very character of God. Is an affront to the very character of God. I, I love the fact that he says, you are not a God. That word are, like we're looking at the very essence, the nature of who God is. And evil runs directly contrary to that. Sin runs contrary to that. In fact, a really good definition of sin is anything that is contrary to the nature and the will of God. That's, that's what sin is. Like, here's God and anything that's not like God is sin. So this first statement, God does not delight in sin. Now, why is it that God does not delight in sin? Well, he is, he is the ultimate reality. And God loves his creation and he loves humanity. Sin defaces his creation. Sin dehumanizes humanity. So because God loves what is good and loves what is right, he must therefore hate what is evil? Right? We all, some people want this God like he just, God loves everyone for God so loved the world. That's wonderful. That's true. But people sometimes flatten it out to be like, well, God just sort of loves and there's no sort of disdain for evil and there's no wrath and there's no judgment. Listen, if we have a God who loves, he by definition must hate that which goes against what he ultimately loves. You love your family you're going to hate that which brings harm to your family. Say, man, I, I love my wife, and there's someone there who is harming or hurting your wife. You're going to respond in a way. It's your love that compels you to do that. God's, God's holiness, God's response to evil in an infinitely perfect way that's not tainted by flying off the handle or you know, sinfulness that, that we would have, 
is that response to evil because he loves. He burns with a holy hatred against everything that defiles his creation, everything that defies his rule. In other words, God's hatred of sin is not opposed to his love. It is an expression of his love. So the point here is God does not find delight in sin. That's what says the verse 4. The, uh, I'm going to get the wrong psalm here. Psalm 5, verse 4. Thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. God finds no pleasure. He finds no delight, no happiness, no joy in sin. He does not look at sin and be like, huh, that's cute. That's funny. Like, you know, you might with a toddler who's disobeying and it's almost hard to keep a straight face. God doesn't look at sin and chuckle at it. He is utterly repulsed by it. We have a whole society, a whole sort of uh, comedy industry that is built around the premise of making us laugh at that which is evil, right? Let's take things that are sinful and these relationships between couples and jokes that are off color and get people to laugh at what ought to make us weep. Smile at what ought to grieve us. Now we go on here in verse 4. We're going to just walk through this phrase by phrase. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. And evil could be personified. Neither shall the evil person dwell with you. Because God is so opposed in his holiness to all that is sinful and evil, and sin and evil by definition is anything that is contrary to God's will or nature, no evil can dwell. And the word here dwell is the idea of sojourn. It's just even like temporarily setting up a, you know, a tent in the backyard kind of way. Evil can't even pass through God's presence in a temporary kind of way. Our God is a consuming fire, and sin is highly combustible. No sin and no sinner could ever stand before God. The Bible is crystal clear from Genesis to Revelation that no evil person will ever draw near to God or enter into his presence or be with him forever in heaven. It is impossible. Don't you know, Paul writes, that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21 verse 8 lists out all of these sins that will not be present in heaven, that every liar will have his place in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Evil will not dwell with God. In other words, there's going to be a termination to evil. One day all evil, all sin, all sinners will be banished to the lake of fire. Verse 5 goes on. The foolish, the idea here is the boaster, the one who praises himself, will not stand in thy sight. So pride, pride is something that cannot be tolerated in God's presence. Just putting this, making this concrete. That, that moment when you know all of us are like, well, I'm far better than that person, or Oh, I can't believe that guy over there. Or, you know, I'm a pretty decent person. At least I'm not like those people are. And all of us have a list of the those people that we thank God we're not like, that we would never dream to do what they do. The moment we do that, we're falling into this category of being the boasters, of being the foolish who will not stand in God's sight, who will be, who will be told, depart from me, ye who work iniquity. In a phrase that some people have a hard time with, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Direct statement, God, you hate not just the work of iniquity, but the worker of iniquity. God not only hates the sin, according to this text, he hates the one who commits the sin. Uh, So I think sometimes we try to flatten this out with the slogan, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Uh, But that gets smashed on verses like this that make it clear that God has a kind of hatred, not just for sin, but also for the ones who commit the sin. It's not just this verse, by the way, over the page in Psalm 7. Verse 11, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. He has an anger not just towards wickedness, but towards the wicked. Over in Psalm 11, verse 5, 
uh, we get it repeated again. The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Now, here's our challenge. We hear the word hate, and we sort of read into that our fallen, sinful human kind of hatred. All, all human hatred is sinful because our hatred is always tainted and motivated by, by malice, by disdain, by selfishness, by pride, and I'm just going to hate that person because of this, because of what they've done to them, done to me. What we're talking about here is a synonym for what we might call the wrath of God. The Bible's teaching sort of throughout that God will judge sin. And guess what? When God judges sin, you know, when, when, when sinners are cast into the lake of fire, he, God is not just sort of casting, well, here's sin as sort of a disembodied principle. The sinners themselves are judged. The sinners themselves will face the wrath of God for all eternity. That's a horrifying thought. But it is a biblical thought. If we're going to say the Bible is God's word, we cannot get away from this teaching of Scripture that there is eternal torment for those who reject Christ. That anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Not just the sin, but the sinners. Not just the actions, but the actors themselves who do this. So we have trouble sometimes with this idea of you hate the workers of iniquity, God's wrath against sin, because what we think at this standpoint, at this point is we're like, well, I knew someone who was really angry and they flew off the handle into a rage and it was out of control. That's not what God's wrath is like. God's wrath is the expression of his eternal and holy and perfect character burning against all that which is evil. So well, what do we do with verses like John 3, 16? For God so loved the world. I thought that means God loves everyone and you can't love someone and hate someone. This gets us into this very dilemma, the heart of this, the mystery of who God is. That we have a God who is infinite love and infinite holiness at the same time, and those are not at odds. A God who in his holiness can say, I hate all sin and my wrath will be against sinners, yet at the same time saying, I love all sinners because they're made in my image and there's a way of redemption that has been opened through Christ. So those who don't know Jesus simultaneously, the object of God's wrath, while also the objects of his love that sends Jesus to die in our place. Our other challenge here is we have such a shallow view of sin that we can't comprehend God. How could God pour out wrath and have hatred towards someone who, man, my neighbor's a good person, they just don't believe in Jesus. We just don't see sin as an affront to his character. It's a verse like this that kind of slaps us on the side of the head. That makes a verse like John 3.16 mean something. See, John 3.16 is a very sort of affirming verse. If I already think that, well, of course God loves me. Well, of course God would, would think that I'm awesome because I'm a great person. And I'm a nice person. So for God so loved the world, that's good news. That's wonderful because that's how I already view myself. John 3.16 is only meaningful when we have verses like this to say, God hates your sin. And your wrath is going to be poured out against it. You know, so John 3.16 is followed by John 3.17 says that there's condemnation. John 3.36 goes on to say that anyone who does not receive Christ, the wrath of God abides on them forever. Even now. We need verses like this one to help us grasp how awesome and shocking and scandalous God's love would be towards the likes of you and me who deserve absolutely nothing from God. It's only when we grasp that we deserve his eternal wrath that we will marvel at his infinite love. 
And we go along here in the, in the text, back to Psalm 5, verse 6. You'll destroy them that speak leasing. Okay, leasing is not like, hey, here's a house. Will you sign a lease and you can have it for... The idea here is the idea of deception. Those who speak lies, those who speak falsehoods. It says, you're, you're going to destroy them. You're going to abhor the bloody and deceitful man. So those who are marked by violence and by deceit, God is going to bring his judgment upon it, upon them. You know, we often will read a passage like this. Yeah, that's right, God, get the terrorists. Yes, Osama bin Laden and Adolf Hitler. Judge those guys, just don't judge me. Okay, the, the serial killer and the, the rapist, yes, God, we want you to judge them, but don't judge me. But notice the sin that gets singled out here, lying. You ever told a lie before? How many of you just in a public forum like to say, I've told at least one lie before in my life? According to this verse, every single one of us in this room deserve God's destructive wrath. Let that sink in for a minute, right? Like this, okay, we say God's holiness, God's going to judge sin. This is good news. We want God to judge sin, but we want God to not sort of judge my sin. Like, yes, there's evil in the world. This is such a problem. Just God, don't judge my sin. Judge their sin, not mine. And we're going to sort of arbitrarily say that mine's not as bad as theirs, and God's going to overlook mine. If God's going to deal with evil in this world, he's got to deal with all evil in this world, including your evil and my evil. Does this not leave us in a place where we're kind of without hope? Like, this is not really making me feel better about what's happening in our, in our world because all of a sudden I realize evil is not just something that's out there. It's something that's right, right here. It's easy for us to say the evil is outside the four walls of this church. It's in Washington, D.C. It's in Moscow, Russia. It's in Beijing, China. The evil is happening out on these you know, dark streets in Mobile where, where crimes are happening. And indeed, that is evil. But the standard God has of what is evil and what is sinful condemns all of us. So if we were to end the message right here, all of us stand under God's condemnation and God's holiness is really, really troubling for us to consider. Praise God for verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. But as for me, and the Hebrew text brings this word forward, in the multitude of thy mercies, I will come into thy house. It says, unlike the wicked who are going to be cast out and be judged, David is saying, in the multitude of your grace, your amazing grace, your infinite grace, I am going to come into your presence. Now, if you know a thing or two about David's life, he's guilty of all of the sins he just mentioned. David was violent. He had a dude killed. David was deceptive. David was an adulterer. David did all kinds of horrible things. Yet he has the audacity to say, in the multitude of your mercies, I'm going to come into your presence. I'm going to come into your house. They're like, what's going on here? How can God be holy and let the likes of David come near to him? You ever thought that before? Ever wrestled with that before? It is because of this and this only in the multitude of your mercy. The Hebrew word has said your loving kindness, your covenant mercy, your grace. That's it. You know what the difference is between you and the person who will forever face God's wrath? The difference is grace. Now, here's the logic we often fall into as human beings. Well, if the wicked are judged because of their wickedness, then the righteous approach God on the basis of their righteousness. Here's the problem. We don't have any righteousness. We don't have anything to bring to the table except sin. So what, on what basis can we draw near to a holy God? Because of grace. Neither David nor we can approach God 
because we're rather we approach God because he's gracious. So don't let your human reason say, well, if sin's the reason the wicked are banished, then obedience is the reason we're accepted. Not true. We don't have any obedience. It's grace and grace alone, and grace is God's prerogative, not ours. That's how grace works. It's generosity. It's gift. So again, while it might seem that if the wicked are excluded by wickedness, then the righteous must be welcomed on the basis of their righteousness, that's not the case. We're accepted on the basis of grace. This is awesome. As part of our answer to evil, particularly the evil in our own hearts, is there is grace and mercy and favor and forgiveness that's available from God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place, the one who satisfied the wrath of God. You know, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? The cross is absolutely necessary because of the holiness of God. The cross is absolutely necessary because sin must be atoned for. God is so holy, he can't just sweep sin to the side. God is so holy, he cannot just overlook it. God is so holy, he's not going to just sort of grade on the curve and give a pass to a failing student. Sin must be paid for. Someone must earn the grade to pass. And Jesus does that on our behalf. He lives a sinless life. He dies a substitutionary death in our place, bearing the wrath that we deserve, facing the exclusion that we deserve. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is abandoned. He is rejected so that you and I can be accepted. He dies so that we can live. He suffers so we can go free. That's awesome. That's all wrapped up there in verse 7. The multitude of your mercies, I'll come into your house. I'll worship towards your holy temple. Notice the the, the process here. The same grace that draws us, draws us all the way into a place of worship. That's the goal of grace, is to bring us to a place of trusting and relying and treasuring and celebrating God. Now we go along into verse 8, because now he brings us into his present situation. Lead me. This is the request here. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness, because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face, for there's no faithfulness in their mouth. He's like, hey, the wicked around me, the enemies around me are full of deception. And here's the temptation when you're facing evil, is to sort of begin to begin to be so sort of angry at the evil, responding to it in the way that it responds to you, that you become the very image of the thing you don't want to be. You ever see that? It happens in David's life. Uh, he's being chased down by Saul. And David has these opportunities to kill Saul, and he refrains from doing that. Yet in the middle of that, in in, in 1 Samuel, I think it's 25, there's a guy named Nabal who gives David a hard time, and David's like, go kill him, we're going to take all of this stuff, or he's going to get what he deserves. And David, for a moment, almost turns into Saul. This is what David's prayer is here in verse 8. God, lead me in righteousness, so as I respond to evil, I myself do not become evil. As I respond to the wickedness and the injustice around me, I don't go grabbing for the same tools that they are grabbing. Listen, just because evil people do evil things in an evil way does not mean good people can resort to the same tactics. Well, they lie and they deceive and they cheat and they steal. I'm going to do the same for a good cause. Uh, Listen, the end does not justify the means. So he says, God, guide me, lead me in righteousness. Help me to be loyal to you and your your word in the middle of a world that is not. We're only going to be faithful to Jesus in a wicked world if we're seeking his guidance. This is not lead me, help me to make a right decision, you know, get the right job, but rather, God, help me to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. This is a prayer for God, help me to do right, 
in a world where everybody is doing wrong. So when you're attacked, when you're slandered, when you face evil, it's tempting to do the same thing as what is happening to you. We need to pray to God, God, guard me against that, lead me in, lead me in righteousness. Here's my point here. God's grace draws us into his presence. It's what saves us. But God's grace is also what sanctifies us and protects us and leads us. So amazing grace and grace will lead me home is the idea that we're dealing with. Okay, as we respond to evil, we need to not only appeal to God's sovereignty and God's holiness and God's grace. There's a solution to evil in my heart, by the way, in other people's hearts as well, if they would but have it. Fourth, appeal to God's justice. So verse 9 it's describing, goes back to describing the wicked. There's no faithfulness, the idea, no truthfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. So both mouth and heart, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. The words that are coming out of their mouth reveal a heart that is opposed to God. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. The idea there is their throat, the words that they speak are sort of deadly killing kind of words. Paul quotes this passage in Romans 3 in his indictment of humanity, saying this is where all of us are. We use our mouths to tear down and to attack. They flatter with the tongue. So here's the prayer in verse 10, destroy them. Destroy them, O God. Now, this is not so much that the Hebrew word here is not so much go and smash them. As much as it is, God, would you hold them to account? Right? Would you give them a guilty verdict? This is an appeal for justice. Verse 10 uh, is an example of what is called an imprecatory prayer. Big word. These examples we get in the Psalms of people praying for God's judgment on their enemies. Now, the question comes up, we living in the new covenant, should we pray like this for God to judge our enemies? We have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. So our initial posture as new covenant people of God living on this side of the cross is even when we are wronged is to bless those who curse you, right? It is to do good to those who hate you. It is to love those who hate you. It is to seek their salvation, but there is a sense in which it is not wrong for us to step back and say, God, I'm going to trust you to bring about justice when and how you see fit. Uh, so I would be hesitant to specifically pray, God, would you judge this person in this way right now and bring down the fire of heaven against them? Because we don't know what God may do in that, in that person's heart. You could picture the early church as they're getting hauled off into prison and into jail and being sort of stoned and attacked. God, would you judge and destroy and, and make drop dead Saul of Tarsus? What a wicked human being who is defying you. But God had other plans. Saul the, Saul the persecutor becomes Saul the great missionary. He becomes Paul the apostle. He becomes this great instrument of divine grace. Yet at the same time, as we pray, so as we respond to people around us, okay, listen, understand this, you're not David. Okay, David's a king, and he's got judicial responsibility, so he's going to pray in ways that you and I are not necessarily going to pray. But what we do have in the New Testament is this statement, vengeance is mine, quoting the Old Testament, I will repay, says the Lord. We can be greatly helped by resting in the fact that there is a God in heaven who is absolutely and perfectly just. And even when there is no justice in this world, there will be justice in the next even when things are not made right in our lifetime, they will be made right in eternity. 
there's amazing power in that because it takes us out of the place of, oh, no, there's no justice. I better make it happen. I better try to bring heaven to earth by my effort, by my power, by my activism, by my vigilante kind of justice. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. When we recognize, no, the matters are actually in God's hand, and they were never in my hand, and they're not supposed to be in my hand, that frees me to actually be about doing God's work in this world. It frees me to go about loving my enemies because, you know what? God's the one who's going to judge them, not me, and I'm going to appeal to that. Now, there is a sense when we, play, when we pray, thy kingdom come. We're praying for Jesus to come back, and we know that when Jesus comes back, he is going to judge this world. He's going to judge this world in truth and righteousness and perfection. He's going to make all things new. Whenever we pray, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, baked into that is a prayer for God to bring justice for those who are not getting it right now. And so you think about all the people who have escaped justice in this life. They are one day going to stand before God. So we appeal to the justice of God. Now, notice David's concern here, and this is very important. If you are going to pray that way, notice his concern in verse 10. At the very end of the verse, he's, okay, God, destroy them. Let them fall by their own counsels. Okay, let their own plans kind of come back to bite them. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. The, the motivation for David is, God, it is your character that is being insulted. It is your rule that is being challenged. David's ultimate concern here is not for himself, but it's for the glory of God. There's not a hint here of sort of selfish motivation in this request. Now, finally, as we approach evil in this world, there's an appeal here in verses 11 and 12 to the goodness of God. Notice how David has gone back and forth between himself, hear me, and then the, right, uh, the wicked, God, your judgment is going to come, and back and forth to the righteous, I'm going to draw near, would you lead me? Then back to the wicked, would you judge them? The psalm ends out on this note, kind of where it started, with the, with the righteous, with those who are God's people. And notice how those who are righteous are defined. The righteous are not defined by those who do good things and therefore become righteous, but rather, verse 11, let all those who put their trust in thee rejoice. We are justified by faith. We, we don't get declared righteous in God's eyes because we do a bunch of good things. We are seen as righteous and accepted in God's sight when we put our trust and our utter reliance in him. Now, the idea of this word, um, then they put their trust in thee, is the idea of those who have run to him for refuge. There, there's a danger going on, the bombs are falling, and you run into the bomb shelter. So he's the bomb shelter. He's the, he's the bunker. He's the one that you go to for, for trust, for protection from all the danger falling around you. And the greatest danger any soul will face is God, is the wrath of God himself. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel is we flee to God to escape the wrath of God. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. What are we hiding ourselves from? The judgment of God that we rightly deserve. We hide ourselves in Christ. We hide ourselves in the mercy and the promises of God. We hide ourselves in the gospel by relying on Jesus and his finished work who bore and absorbed the bombs, so to speak, who bore and absorbed the wrath that we deserve. So let all those who trust in thee rejoice because we're delivered. Rejoice because one day we're going to be in his presence. Rejoice because his promises are true and good. So the petition here in verse 11 is let the righteous not just survive, let the righteous rejoice and worship. That's what we do in this morning. We get together when we sing. 
We get together, we hear the word of God. We get together and we revel in the promises of God. Let them ever shout for joy. Joy that's never going to end for all of eternity. That's heaven. Because you defend them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Trusting in Jesus brings us to a place of loving his name, of of not just get me out of hell, but no, I love you and I want you. Now the reason for this, the ground underneath this, for thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor. God's goodness. He shows to people who don't deserve it. The ground here is God's blessing, his goodness. He surrounds us like a shield, it says there in verse 12. He surrounds us with not just one of those little sort of round shields like the Greeks had, but one of those full body kind of shields that gives us complete and utter protection from all the evil around us. So how do you respond to evil? Some people respond to evil in just rage. You see it, it makes you angry. Your sense of justice is just, ah. And this anger begins boiling in your heart. And sometimes it's the evil that's done directly against you, right? Something happens to you. Someone harms you. Someone hurts you. And the anger, maybe some of you here, there's anger from things that happened years and years and years and years ago that's just been seething and bubbling in your heart. So some people say, well, what you need to do with anger is you, you just vent it out. And so you just kind of let it rip and you, you just rage at the world. You go out and scream at the sky. Other people say the way you handle your anger, rather than venting it out, is you hold it all in. That's better. We're just going to sort of, like a pressure cooker, put the lid on there and just let it. Biblically, what do we do with it? It's neither vent it out or hold it in, but pray it up. Take it to God and say, God, there's evil in the world, and I'm going to trust you. You're sovereign. You're holy even when there's bad things that are happening. You're gracious to the likes of me. You're a God of justice who one day make it right. You're a God who's good, who has showered favor on me, who has surrounded me with your goodness. One day Jesus will come back. One day Jesus will make all things new. Until then, may we appeal to and rest in the character of God.